Let's pray. Father, we ask that the power of God would be made known to all of us through the preaching of the gospel. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Last time I was with you, I was a little embarrassed because I didn't know how many other times I'd be with you, and that, I think, um, made Trevor nervous, rightly, you know, is, and so he um, sent me an email and let me know, it's two more times, counting this one. So now we're all on the same page. Um, I've enjoyed it, and also an apology, I know that some of you reached out and said, hey, can we hang out? And I want to hang out, but I got, I got totally lost in Pittsburgh last week. I was teaching at Trinity Ambridge, a doctor of ministry class, and I didn't realize what a, what a black hole that would be for me. I really enjoyed it, but it also meant that I, I kind of let some of you down. So I'm sorry about that, and, and we'll circle back, and I'm looking forward to seeing you. Apologies. There's a little short story. Uh, Flannery O'Connor wrote it. It's called Revelation. I don't know if you have ever read it or heard it. Uh, I keep coming back to it. I come back to it over and over and over. I love reading it. It's, uh, it never gets old, to me at least. It's a story about a woman. Her name is Ruby Turpin. And she goes to the doctor's office with her husband, Claude. And the two of them enter the office, and Miss Turpin insists that her frail husband take the last empty chair in the office, and she does it with no small amount of self-satisfaction that she is uh, offering up the empty seat to her husband. She looks around, and she sees there's a dirty little blonde boy with a runny nose, and she's offended because he's so dirty, and because he has a runny nose, and because he's a little boy. And she's doubly offended because the mother doesn't make the dirty little boy get up and offer his chair to Mrs. Turpin. And she surveys the room, and in in one quarter is the dirty little boy whose mother won't make him move, and a few seats over is a frail old man who appears to be sleeping, but Mrs. Turpin imagines he's only pretending to be asleep, so he won't have to get up and offer his chair. I've done that, actually. In another corner is a mother and a child who Mrs. Turpin quickly dismisses as white trash. And finally, there's an ugly little college girl. She's scowling into a thick blue textbook. The nurse calls a name, and someone moves, and Mrs. Turpin goes to sit down, and there's a gospel hymn playing. When I looked up and he looked down, Mrs. Turpin knows the song, so she finishes it in her head. One of these days, I'm going to wear that crown. Turpitude's a word that comes from the Latin turpus, and it means disgraceful, ugly, wicked, and depraved. And Mrs. Turpin, whose name is derived from this word, is all of these things. She is respectably middle class. She has aged, but she has aged well. She speaks nightly to Jesus. She can finish the lyrics of a gospel hymn on the radio, but she's vile. Now the reader can see it, but she can't. So today we continue this series on the creed. Uh, At Holy Cross, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. No doubt Mrs. Turpin believed she was part of the one holy Catholic 
an apostolic church, and she may have been. But whatever she believed about herself and her church and her God, and I'm, I'm not talking about doctrinal content. I'm not talking about what she believed. I'm talking about what she believed in her gut and in her heart about God and the church and herself. Whatever she believed here made her ugly. The reader can see it. She cannot. Unlike Mrs. Turpin, you and I are not characters in a short story, but that doesn't mean people aren't reading you. It doesn't mean that as representatives of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, people aren't reading you constantly. And the good news is if you're a visiting skeptic, you're totally off the hook, you know. (laughs) You're reading us if you're here. If you're visiting, when the church is read, this is the question, does the world see things that the church can't? Like Mrs. Turpin. And if so, why? That's what I want to talk with you about today. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. They're nice enough to print it out. You have it, right? And you can follow it if you want. When Jesus came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what do people say about the Son of Man? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said, what about you? Who do you say I am? Something real quick, off as an aside, um, what do people say about the Son of Man? If you're new to Christianity or you're visiting, you might wonder what this means, Son of Man. You know, why doesn't Jesus just say, what do people think about me? Well, if you're new to Christianity or visiting, uh, Son of Man is a name that Jesus intentionally uses to refer to himself. And uh, it's from the Old Testament. It can mean one of two things. It could just mean a human being. You know, I, I am a Son of Man. And, and the Old Testament uses... Son of Man, in that way, in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament also uses Son of Man as a special name for someone God is going to send to do a special thing. In, uh, in Psalm 80, Son of Man is literally God's right-hand man. So in asking what others think of him, Jesus is also saying something about himself. Who do people say is the special guy God's going to send? Who do people say he is? What are people saying about God's right-hand man? What are people saying about me? Well, we learn from the answer, there are as many opinions about Jesus as there are people. And in that regard, the first century is not so different than our century. There are as many opinions about Jesus as as there are people, and that's exactly what they say. Well, well, some people say this, and some people say that, and Jesus cuts to the chase. Yeah, thanks for that. Who do you say that I am? There's two answers to that question. There's the book answer, and there's the life answer. What I mean is, there's the answer Mrs. Turpin gives in Sunday school, and there's the answer Mrs. Turpin gives with her life. You understand the difference. Here's the important thing. The book answer means nearly nothing. 
The Sunday school answer is not what you really believe. The life answer shows what you believe deep down in the gut. The life answer is the book people read about you. And it is also the book people read about Christ. Because as we live and move and have our being in the world and we are known as Christians, people are constantly drawing conclusions about the person of Jesus Christ. Constantly. So we can say, Jesus is the Son of God. It will mean something in the gut to someone learning by the life, you see. I want to give you an example uh, from a song released in 2015 by a country music singer from Florida. And his name is Michael Ray. And the, the song is Real Men Love Jesus. I don't know if you've ever heard the song. They like Saturday nights out on the town, Sunday morning coming down, a pretty girl out on the dance floor spinning round and round and round, cold beer and a dirty hand, calling home every chance they can to say, I love you. They don't need a reason. Real men love Jesus. I'm not sure what you think about that. I think the last two lines don't rhyme. Um, <laughs> What I really want to point out to you is that the conclusion of the chorus, real men love Jesus, reflects literally none of the words that come before it. Real men love Jesus because they like dancing with pretty girls, drinking beer, and calling home. What does that even mean? <laughs> I have always liked dancing with pretty girls, drinking beer, and calling home. I liked it before I knew Jesus, and I liked it after. Being a real man loving Jesus hasn't had a huge impact on my appreciation of beer. <laughs> Even though it's pretty nonsensical, it is saying something about Jesus. It certainly is. It's also saying something about the followers of Jesus. Grady Smith is the country music critic for The Guardian, and, and he said he described this song as little more than a cultural bumper sticker. It cheapens faith and wild living at the same time. That's what he said. Now contrast that with, a, with another song from a 1996 album called Unchained, and the song's called Unchained, and it's written by Johnny Cash. I have been ungrateful. I have been unwise. Restless from the cradle. But now I realize... It's so hard to see the rainbow through glasses dark as these. Maybe I'll be able from down on my knees. Oh, I am weak. Oh, I am vain. Take this weight from me so my spirit can be unchained. You see the difference? Yeah. They both love Jesus, don't they? They both say something about him. They say something totally different. 
Mm-hmm. Totally different. Who do you say I am? You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus told him, Simon, son of Jonah, you're blessed. You didn't discover this on your own. It was shown to you by my Father in heaven. I will call you Peter, which means a rock. On this rock I will build my church. Death itself will not have power over it. Peter knows who Jesus is. But Peter's learning something about who he is. It takes him a long time to learn it, though. If you know the story, it takes him a long time to learn it. Who do you say I am? And it's no surprise, if you've read the Gospels, if you've read them, you know, it's no surprise that Peter speaks up first. You're Jesus. You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. And then Jesus... Jesus quickly reminds him, I bet Peter didn't get it because it's so subtle. Jesus quickly reminds him, yeah, but you didn't come up with that. Flesh and blood didn't, didn't give you this. It's not that you are around me more than everybody else. You are. It's not that you're trying harder than everybody else. You might be. It's not that you're smarter than everybody else. That could be true too. But all of your strength and all of your commitments and all of your smarts couldn't give this to you. My father did. Because you are vain and weak. You don't know it yet. But Peter learns it, doesn't he? And this is something that I, I want you to understand. On this rock, I'll, I'll found my church. You know, there, there are some Christian denominations that uh, believe that this means the church is founded on the Apostle Peter. And this, uh, you know, I don't want to get into this argument. This is the basis of Roman Catholicism and the Pope. Yeah. Uh, the current pope falls in the line of Peter, and so the, the rock has to, this is the rock. I don't want to get into that. I, I think this means that it's the confession of Christ as the Son of God upon which the church stands. But I don't think that's all it means. I think it also rests a little bit upon who's doing the confessing. What do I mean? I mean Peter the brash is the one who says, you're the son of God. Peter the arrogant is the one who says, you're the son of God. Peter on the night that Christ is betrayed, when Jesus says, all of you will leave. Peter the one who didn't say, we wouldn't do that. But Peter, who said, even though they will, I'd never do it. I'll even die with you. And it's Peter who learns that none of that's true. Peter the coward. Peter the betrayer. Peter who's hobbled by his own sin. 
and shame so much that he can't even look at Jesus in the face. Peter, the one who learns to sing, I'm weak and I'm vain. Peter, who says, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God. He says it differently on Easter Sunday than he says it on Monday, Thursday. You understand what I'm saying? He says it differently. This is the rock upon which the church is built. I have a friend in here uh, who taught me something really important. He was desperately sick. You know, life, death, sick. And I remember people were encouraging him, you're a hero for the faith, you're a hero for the faith. And, and I think he is, but when, when my friend was healed, he came to visit me. And he said, I can't take it anymore, these people telling me I'm a hero. And I'm not going to tell you some of the things he said after that. I, I think they're too personal. But he said, he said, what I've learned about all this is there's really just one hero. And it ain't me. That's the faith upon which the church is founded. That is the faith stronger than death. It's a faith that looks weak and fragile. It's survived empires and persecution. Survived tyrants in the church and outside of it. Poor Mrs. Turpin doesn't know this. But she learns it in the story. I don't know if you know how the story ends or even if you were remembering Mrs. Turpin at all. Do you want to know what happens to her? I'm going to tell you anyway. I mean, it's in here, so... The college girl that Mrs. Turpin says is the ugly little college girl. We don't know why, but she just becomes angrier and angrier and angrier over the course of the story until she grabs the textbook she's reading and hurls it at Mrs. Turpin's face. Hits her right in the forehead. And then they, they restrain this college girl. They think she's having an episode. And they're going to sedate her. And right before she's sedated, Mrs. Turpin says, don't you have something you'd like to say to me? And you know what the college girl says? You go back to hell, you old warthog. <laughs> so Mrs. Turpin's disturbed by this. <laughs> And she goes home, and she's, is, is, to her credit, she's wrestling with God about what this means. She's wondering, am I, am I a warthog from hell? <laughs> and the sun sets, and it's the light burst at sunset that gives her the revelation. That's the name of the story, Revelation. And I'll read to you the revelation. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending up from the earth through a field of living fire. And upon it, a vast horde of souls rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time, a band of blacks and white robes, a battalion of freaks and lunatics shouting and 
clapping and leaping like frogs. Bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key, yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces even their virtues were being burned away. So some of you have learned about Jesus from Mrs. Turpin. And what you've learned is that you're no good and you don't really belong here. And if you learned that, you're wrong. Because the things that you take to be weakness will be revealed as enormous strength at the end of all things. You alone with weak faith, with indwelling sin, with mounds of disappointments and shame, you alone will find the power to leap like a frog at the end of all things. I also know that it has dawned on some of you while we're doing this that you're Mrs. Turpin. And you've just learned that your great strength is an enormous weakness. But I hope you also heard you're in the procession because Christ has grace for the weak and he has grace for the strong. They all belong to him. One day even Mrs. Turpin will leap like a frog. And that's what the one holy Catholic and apostolic church really is. Let me say a few quick things as we close. Here's thing number one. The very things that you are most proud of might be the very things keeping you from enjoying Christ. It may require you to willingly give up the things you are most proud of in order to enjoy Christ most fully. If you believe in Christ, I would ask you to take that to God in prayer and give him an open invitation to take from you your strength so that you could learn how to leap like a frog. I have been praying that for many years, since I was in my 20s. I feel like God only recently answered it. It's enormously painful, but I think I jump higher now. If you're visiting, the main thing I want you to hear is if you think, if your experience of God's people has meant that you've been ruled out, the wonderful Jamie Johnson, another great country song, Jamie Johnson, he's, he's um, it's during a period of his life when he's addicted to drugs and the song, he's, he's in a church parking lot and he knows he needs to go in but he won't go in because he doesn't think there's any place for him. One of the things I hope you've heard today 
is not just a place for you, but the faith that comes out of where you're coming from is the strength of the church. Here's the last thing. It's Father's Day. I didn't have time to do this at the last one. It's a very strict time at the last service. <laughs> I, feel like, um, I feel like I'm a man's man, even though I'm in a dress. <laughs> My kids have seen me chop wood, and they have seen me smoke meat. And One time, I was very proud of this. All the boys in the neighborhood came to get me because they thought there was a bandit. They didn't call the police, they came to get me. And I put a Bowie knife in my back pocket and we went out there. It was just boys' imaginations running wild. I, I really hope those aren't the lessons they take from me. The main thing I would really love for them to learn from me is gentleness and love and mercy and grace and kindness. And I hope that, that they'd also take from me that I'm not self-deluded. I can sing that Johnny Cash song with conviction. And the thing, dads, that I pray you pass down to your children is that there's a greater, more honorable, stronger man than you. And the greatest thing you can teach your children is how to cling to that man. More importantly, you can teach them when you stop clinging to that man, as I have done many times. He has not stopped clinging to me. Let's pray. Teach us, Lord Jesus, how to be the church that counts. Amen.